0: Welcome to more to come, P.W. Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and co-editor of P.W. Comics World. Check us out online at publisherswiki.com slash comics. All right, podcast listeners, uh, this week I have the great and timely pleasure uh, of talking with uh, Anika. Anika, did I say that right? Or is it An- You did. I did. Okay. I'm. I'm yeah. I'm, I wanna, Anika. I, Anika. It doesn't uh, happen very often. <laughs> author and illustrator of uh, a wonderful and timely book, as I said before, "The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League." Uh, Anika, welcome to more more to come.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, I, I assume our listeners, unless they've been under living under uh, a rock. Or, you know, or, or, or lost in the bowels of Yankee Stadium. Uh, they'll <laughs> know what the All American Girls, uh, baseball league, I think originally, but, um, I think it's been the All American Girls professional baseball league in recent years. The, uh, mm-hmm. they'll notice about, obviously it brings to mind, um, a league of their own, uh, you know, the, uh, the Penny Marshall film uh mm-hmm. that drew a lot of attention to this league. A lot of us, including me, and I'm like a nutty baseball fan, uh, did not know much at all about uh, the original uh uh Professional Women's Baseball League. That movie um, certainly was really helpful and I think this book will do something of the same uh for us. So uh I'm I'm gab- I talk too much all the time. Tell us about your book. Just give us a brief information about it and then then I've got some more questions for you.
1: Yeah. Well, um, well, first of all, I, I think maybe a lot more people have been living under a rock (laughs) than Uh, we think. I'm surprised. I, I the same as you. I assume everybody knows something about it because of the movie. And then I'm really surprised how many people, uh, I, I mention it to and they kind of look at me like, Oh, what's Uh, that? You know, so I don't, I don't know if it's just because there's a whole new generation that hasn't seen the movie or, um, Or what it is, but I hope that this, like, as you said, I hope this book does the same and I hope it encourages people to watch the movie. Um, but, uh, the book is, I guess so if you have seen the movie, it's based on, um, the all American girls professional baseball league, which was the first and so far only professional women's baseball league that's existed in the United States. And it, uh, it, it existed from 1943 to 1954 uh, it was kind of a response to World War II and the manpower required to sending um, all of our American able-bodied men overseas. Um, they were vacating jobs, and a lot more women went into the workforce. But um, same thing with baseball. A lot of them went over to fight. And um, so Wrigley, uh, of Wrigley Field and Wrigley Gum, came up with this idea to start a women's league. And I think it kind of started off as maybe a little bit of a – Part patriotic duty, part novelty thing, but it, it took off and it was very popular and very successful. And
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump yeah, yeah. in here right here because that's good. That's a good intro. Um, we're gonna talk a lot more about the book, but I also want to talk about a little bit about your background. I've both a fan because this uh, I want our, our listeners to know. I mean, this is a visual book. Uh, it's 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 a depth combination of text. And, uh, and really lively, funny, and dynamic, uh, cartoons. Uh, you're a good sports cartoonist. Um. Well, thank you. Uh, and I know you uh, you have a background as an illustrator, a writer, designer, and an animator. I, I understand that that's, uh, true. So tell us a little bit about your, your, um, your cartooning background and about your sports background, your baseball background. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, they, they sort of collided at some point along the way, which is Perfect. great. But, Perfect. um, well, I've been drawing for as long as I can remember. I mean, I, I, you know, so that, that part, uh, has always existed. And I guess baseball came shortly behind. Um, mm-hmm. okay. But, uh, my grandfather was a cartoonist. He was also a newspaper columnist. So I kind of idolized him. I always mm-hmm. wanted What's to. What's his name? His name is Ray Orok mm-hmm. and he uh yeah, he was like a, a humor life columnist in the in the East Bay area, all the syndicated papers there. Kind of in the same vein as like Herb Kane, if anyone sure. from San Francisco mm-hmm. is familiar. Um, and um, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of where I got the genetics or the interest. I don't know. But um I kind of I'm one of those people that uh really took a meandering path. <laughs> to get to wherever I wanted to go. I wasn't, I wasn't one of those kids that woke up in the morning and was like, you know, all I wanted to do, all I ever told people I wanted to do was be an animator for Disney. And that was, yeah. <laughs> that was my dream all the uh-huh. way up until, you know, I, I guess at a certain point I, I realized how tedious animation, animation. Was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was in the 2d days. So, you know, sure. I, I enjoyed it, but I could get like maybe three seconds worth down. I was like, Oh, I'm so tired All those of doing thing.
0: But <laughs> Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, um, that kind of changed, but I did end up doing work on the conceptual side. So I've done, uh-huh. um, I've really enjoyed doing some character work and um, some storyboarding work and, um, you know, and that was, kind of the direction I was heading for a long time and kind of like dancing around it doing all sorts of other things because I have so many other interests but um there was a point where I just I I guess I just felt like the amount of stories and ideas and things that I wanted to tell and I had to say outweighed my interests in drawing other people's stories <laughs> yeah well. and I um you know and and that's that's not a bad thing or a good thing it just I it just was kind of, um, a decision I had to make and it wasn't an easy one, but I, uh, I started drawing, uh, my own story on the side just to kind of keep my own Mm -hmm. sanity, um, while I was working on a, a different project. Of somebody else's creation, and uh, my the story that I decided to work on, I just decided to pick something that I really loved and enjoyed, which was baseball, mm-hmm. and it was kind of a nice excuse to watch more baseball, <laughs> you know, <laughs> there you uh, go. <laughs> reference more things, and you know the characters that I was developing for this story, I realized I could reference from really great places that I also loved, like for example, Coach from Cheers, um, mm-hmm. and you know, actually a lot of characters from Cheers, they they're just it was, I was having a lot of fun and it kind of felt like cheating, but, um, it was a weird thing where I started posting it online just kind of because that's what you do nowadays. Sure. And it kind of, uh, it kind of just started catching on and and sort of took on a life of its own, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, um, and a couple of people saw it and, uh, well, John Miller, the voice of the giants.
0: Um, Oh, sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, he saw something I had done on Instagram, but what was the most interesting part of that is that he grew up in Hayward, California and, and he grew up reading my grandpa's column every morning, uh, like a lot of people Mm -hmm. in the area did. And my last name is pretty unusual. So, uh, he, I guess he kind of made that connection and invited me to a game, uh, and a visit to the press box, which was amazing. Um, but that, that sort of evolved into, he's just been amazing. He's, he's, been a a great friend and, um, I guess almost like family really, but Mm -hmm. it it has afforded me the opportunity to, to sit in a lot of ballparks and do some drawing in some really great places. And that I just was doing it for fun, but then it really became a thing. You know, I thought I, it just, it never got old. A lot of things I've done in the past I enjoyed for a while, then it was like, okay, it's time to move on. Mm. And that that may or may not happen, Mm. but right now I just, I, all I Mm. could, think is how much fun it would be to just write about and draw about baseball <laughs> for the rest of my life.
0: So when did, the, when did the, the, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League come into focus for you? Was this going on at the same time?
1: No, actually, uh, so I did a lot of uh, – I had been doing drawing in, in ballparks and at games and drawing from various stories that exist in baseball history, which mm. is just like an a endless you know, abyss of wonderful stories in baseball, um, the history behind it. But sure. I was putting together kind of a little self-published book of my art um, to bring to. I don't know if if uh, you or any of your listeners are familiar with CTN. It's a it's a large um, convention for the animation industry and illustration. Uh-huh.
0: And, I think I've heard and, of it. I'm no, I don't. Uh, I've never attended it myself. But yeah, go on.
1: Well, I, I had committed myself to, uh, a table, to t- having a table, an exhibitor, you know, to exhibit my work there. And I had nothing to sell. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I, I gotta put something together. So I thought, well, I'll just put all my baseball drawings into a, into a little book and sell that. Um, and so I was going through these piles of drawings. Um, I had, you know, I don't even know how many, but a good six inches of drawings I had done, um, while sitting in the ballpark. And as I was going through them, it, it was just this weird realization that I, that I had never experienced before, and maybe it, it was because it was in front of me in a visual form, but that all of my drawings were of men, um, you know, with the exception of maybe some women in the stands around me if I were mm-hmm. sitting in the seats. But uh, it was like hundreds of drawings of men, either men fans or the mm-hmm. men in the press box or men on the field. Um, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is enough with the men already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and if, you know, visually it's like as an artist, when you're, it it just was like kind of boring. It was like, wow, all my lines (laughs) are the same. All my shapes are the same. All my, uh, and I just thought that was kind of weird. And I thought there's got to be good stories of women in baseball and now that I know so many of them, I think, well gosh, what a, like, of course there are, how ignorant, but I really didn't know and the only story I could think of was A League of Their Own, the movie. So I, I did a little bit of, uh, well I watched it and then I did a little bit of internet research and I, the first things I came up with were some really great stories of players, just, just kind of their little personal accounts of growing up and this one woman's, uh, story that I found about her growing up was, uh, about her experience growing up in Chicago, which would have been, I guess, like maybe the in the 30s. Um, and she would play baseball in the back alleys with mm-hmm. all the boys. And then to uh, make a little extra money or money for her family, she uh, would carry around a shoe shine kit and shine the shoes of like mobsters and kingpins. And uh-huh. she shined Al Capone's shoes. And, you know, it was like, this is so, this is just great Material, it's so fun to, you know, visually, uh, I don't know, to, to conjure illustrations in my head. Um, and I just kind of went with it and kind of went down a, a rabbit hole and started collecting those stories and drawing them just for fun again, uh, uh-huh. just to have some variety really, uh, not with really any particular goal in mind. Um, but then I just decided, well, what the heck? I'll pitch, I'll pitch the book idea. Um, and I, I just pitched to Chronicle Books, that was it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because I thought, well, you know, well, I mean I, it was a fun idea, but I didn't really wanna uh, you know, I don't know why. I just well, think a Chronicle thousand books. you
0: pitched it to them and they took it.
1: <laughs> Which is insane. I mean I I, I have since heard how yeah, that doesn't exactly. really happen. But um I just I have always loved what they do. I love uh the way they put things together. All their sure. their books are just
0: so how Visually, much, really nice. How much of the book was complete? I mean, did you have a manuscript by, by that time? Did you just use a proposal? What did you? Show I had.
1: Me? Uh, I had nothing. had <laughs> yeah, nothing. Okay. I had. No, well, I, I sent them that book that I was telling you about, and and to supplement the book before I had it printed, I added a big uh chunk of illustrations based on the league so there was some variety in there and just you know um to have something a little bit different in there so i i sent them that along with four different uh ideas for four different books Mm -hmm. and that was one of them and they wanted to that was the one they wanted to do first Mm -hmm. so um my initial idea was pretty simple it was just you know a story from a player on one page and then on the facing page a spot illustration and then I met with an editor and she said, um, well, we want to do it, but we want more. We want the whole thing, because there are a lot Let of people who don't know.
0: Here. Let me jump in yeah. here also. Uh, so um uh, so what, what the book turned into, um was you really did a lot of research. I mean, you really went out and found, uh, these, these, these women who had played in the, basically the original, you know, uh, you know, what, double AGBL, um and because the book obviously the book is accompanied by your your great illustrations but it really is firsthand accounts of the women that these pioneering women that were playing baseball in the 1940s
1: yeah and i wasn't really anticipating <laughs> i wasn't anticipating doing that i mean and it which turned out to be a wonderful thing but my <clears throat> my initial plan was just to kind of take what i had found online and illustrate it and um that would be a fun that would be fun uh what ended up happening was i traveled all over the country i met with these right. women i went yeah. to university of notre dame archives i went to uh, a lot of the original cities where they played i went to rockford south bend i basically right. blew my advance money
2: <laughs> <laughs> well.
1: researching um but well, it was, it was incredible. It I'm was an sure incredible the journey. book is better
0: for it. So, um, that's what editors are for, right? To, to oh my God. annoy yeah. you when you're, when you think you're done.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, they, they, it made it, I mean, the moment I was able to actually conceive of what it would become, I knew it would be like a thousand times more work, but I also thought they're right. Oh my God. This is going to be way better. Um, Way better than I could imagine. I, I I didn't know if I was capable, but I just didn't have time to think about it or doubt myself or wonder if I was. I just had to go for it, and it was great. It was amazing.
0: Well, let me jump in here again with another question. Um, let's let's jump back into the book and and um and just where you left off in describing it. So, um the the all the all American Girls uh, Professional Baseball League uh, was started. You know, basically when the men got all drafted and went off to World War II. Uh, and the, the chewing gum, uh, mad mate, PK Wrigley, uh, decided, uh, and he really believed in this concept, right? To, to, to create a women's professional baseball league.
1: Yeah, he really did. Um, and he did a lot of work to make it work and he spent a lot of time, um, trying to convince other, other major league baseball team owners to, uh, to jump in on this because it it was, you know, he believed in it, but it was also, he also didn't want to lose money. (laughs) right? And I think it was, it was also a business plan
0: to not want. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, yeah, you know, he, he wanted to somehow, he wanted to keep Wrigley field going and he Mm. wanted to keep, uh, you know, business happening to a degree while baseball was sort of, um, stalling during the war and um, it, they ended up really not using Wrigley Field. It, it, it turned into a, something a little bit different, but um, it, it worked. And he, mm. But he couldn't convince anybody else to join in, really. Um, Branch Rickey of the Dodgers was on board, but uh, I don't know that he even contributed financially. Wrigley bankrolled his own money and uh, took a gamble on it. It worked. Yeah,
0: in, the book, in the book you say uh, uh, you, he put $100,000 into launching the league?
1: He did, yeah, yeah. of his own money.
0: Um. So uh, 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 the original league started with four teams, if I'm not mistaken, right? And there was mm-hmm. a tryout. Was it 300 uh, young women uh, showed up for the tryouts initially?
1: 300 young women were invited to spring training, I but mm-hmm. uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women tried out across well, the country. There mm-hmm. were scouts, scouts traveling the country, and they would hold tryouts in, in various towns around the country. So... Uh, you know, and in Canada as well. Uh Um, so they would have these local tryouts in towns and cities all over. And then of those women who made, who made the cut of those tryouts, um, they were all invited to Chicago and they had a spring training of sorts in, at Wrigley Field for, I want to say two weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, it, that was kind of a second round of tryouts. They all trained, but Mm -hmm. then 60 women, of that 300 were chosen for the first four teams.
0: So what are those four teams? Do you, do you do you know them off the top of your head? I've got them written down here if you don't.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. No, there's uh, the Kenosha Comets of Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, South Bend Blue Sox. They were uh, South Bend, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rockford Peaches, which is probably the, the one that most people are familiar sure. with from mm-hmm. uh, A League of Their Own. And the Racing Bells, of uh-huh. also of Wisconsin. All
0: right. And, and and what about the 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 game itself because um uh, they they seem to and you have wonderful uh kind of charts in the book that kind of chart the evolution of how the game because it, it, the first year it was actually softball is that right
1: that's correct yeah mm-hmm. it was it was sort of a modified softball they already made a few changes to the rules to make it a little more baseball like mm-hmm but uh it it started out mostly softball the size of the ball was a softball size the the field distances were um shorter and and you know the field was a bit smaller the infield and um and the name of the league uh started out as the all american girls softball league
0: oh really um, mm-hmm.
1: but that changed very quickly when they realized um that a lot of these women were it was it was more competitive than they anticipated. Mm. Uh, they were a lot better than, yeah. <laughs> than a lot of people uh, anticipated. Mm. Uh, just grew up playing baseball and throwing overhand and playing hardball with, with local boys and men in their neighborhood. So um, a lot of them were already experienced at baseball and maybe not really experienced at softball. Uh, which is pretty much a whole different sport if you play one or the other. So yeah, I guess in
0: those days, I know it, it hadn't like softball hadn't completely taken over. I, I guess I mean I can't say that I know for as far as uh, being an outlet for women's athletics. But but um um uh, but, but what we do know of the period, of course, is that baseball was the overwhelming. Uh, I mean, it really was a national pastime in those days. It was really dominated everything, and it probably. Just as you say, most uh, women and girls are probably more familiar with playing baseball.
1: Yeah, I mean, as far as uh, public knowledge or, or you know, I mean, baseball was everything. Everybody yeah. knew what was happening in, in any kind of race, or you know, uh, it was just you know all the all the baseball stars. Everybody knew their names. Um, but as far as women participating, there were a lot of softball leagues, but they were all recreational, uh-huh. uh, or like local town, you know, somewhat competitive. And also, uh, a lot of them were not, they were, they were considered a little bit too masculine in comparison. Uh-huh. So a lot of young women played, but it was, you know, it was It never really became a big thing because it was maybe not as feminine sometimes as most people wanted to. That's
0: an interesting point, and we're going to get to that in a second because uh, your book uh, uh, deals with that topic as well. But I want to talk a little bit more about the game. So the ball – the size of the ball actually changed from softball, but even the size of the baseball changed over a couple of years. Is that – I think your chart suggests that as well, or is that just the pitching distances?
1: Yeah, no, everything changed. Um, the, the, the distance from the pitching mound to home plate, uh, grew, the base path distances grew, Mm. uh, and the size of the ball shrunk. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It it got down to basically regulation baseball size by the last, by the last year. And, uh, and the pitching style also changed. So it started as underhand pitching as Mm -hmm. in softball, and then it quickly moved to sidearm and Underhand, and then um, and then the next season was sidearm and overhand, and then they just went to full-on overhand pitching pretty pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, it, it that to me also is a testament to the athleticism of those women yeah, to come absolutely. back the next season yeah. and just like oh surprise now we're throwing overhand it's like oh okay.
0: So uh, so the four teams initially it uh, was very successful, right? I think they uh, in the book here admissions they drew what, over one hundred and seventy-six thousand fans. Uh, mm-hmm. In that initial season, uh, and the league was to grow to what a maximum of about what was this about ten teams eventually
1: I want to say ten or twelve i th- I think there was like a total of fifteen, but that mm-hmm. that 's all in all you know some yeah. of them changed location and um, yeah they right. it, it got to be pretty pretty popular particularly i mean it it only really existed in the midwest mm-hmm. around you know where there were mostly factories, war factories. But um, yeah. That's-
0: so tell us about these girls who came out. Uh, in, this is the 1940s, and I think it's safe to say uh, nobody expected girls to be playing professional baseball, or to even be you know taken off from their midwestern hometowns and even going a couple hundred miles away without you know a chaperone of some kind. Um, uh, what was it like for them? Who what what were the women like and what, what, what were their early experiences like to, as far as, uh, you know, being professional athletes?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, a whole new world for every single one of them because mm-hmm. it was unprecedented. Um, I think a lot of them, the only reason that they were allowed to leave, even you know, there's one woman who said, even though I was 18 years old and, and of age, I, I still had to ask my parents because – for a woman to leave home and go play baseball was just crazy. You had to ask (laughs) permission for something like that. So, um, I think a lot of them were only granted permission because there was technically a chaperone. Every team had Mm -hmm. uh, a coach and then a chaperone, a woman who, um, sort of was, I guess, kind of like the team mother. She handled their laundry and, you know, accommodations and different things. She enforced rules. They had a lot of rules. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh I think a lot of parents uh let their daughters leave home knowing that. Um I think also the fact that they were going to be making really good money helped. <laughs> yeah, that's um,
0: not not a know. small thing in in uh, the 1940s, I would imagine. I mean, how much money did they make in yeah. the beginning? Uh
1: I, well, it it varied. Everybody, mm-hmm. you know, depending on um how good they were and how long they'd sure. been with the league and all that. But I think a lot of them started started around $50 a week, 50 to 85 a week, which mm-hmm. At that point, you know a lot of them were making more money than their own fathers, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, they were certainly making more than they would be making working in a war plant uh, and they were making more than minor league ball players of the time so um that was a huge deal because not only was it incentive but um you know it sort of elevated everything where they they acted like professional athletes, they were treated like professional mm-hmm. athletes and uh another thing that is pretty incredible that came out of that was that the money that they made um you know they didn't have time to spend it on the road so it gave them you know they were able to store it away and it gave these women access to a lot of things that women at that time really didn't have access to like higher education and um and then on to careers but as far as leaving home for the first time a lot of these women uh had never even left their town Mm -hmm. let alone their state let alone the country they all went to Cuba in 1947 oh, right. they conducted yeah. spring training there which was huge so it was the first time a lot of them were on an airplane um you know a lot of them grew up on farms uh or in you know inner cities um so yeah it was a pretty incredible adventure for them to all be traveling and they and grueling traveling you know um
0: yeah bus rides I mean they
1: would just ride In the beginning, it was a train, and a lot of times there wasn't room for all of them to sit. They'd have to sit on their suitcases in the aisles of the train and um, travel all night. Get to a town, play the next day. Sometimes a doubleheader. Get back on, get out. You know, is pretty strenuous, but um, I imagine they weren't complaining having getting a chance to play baseball. (laughs) They
0: weren't. They, they, you know, real autonomy um, at a time when. Now you didn't see that too often for for women. Now, um, you you touched on the topic of athletics and the appearance, uh, you know, or, or, or women appearing to be too masculine. Now, the the whole femininity issue was was clearly uh, on the minds of Wrigley uh, when he put the league together, uh, starting, of course, with the uniforms. But there were also and and you uh there's you have some great illustrations in the book about this they uh they had a guide to uh baseball league beauty uh so yeah tell us a
2: little <laughs> bit more
0: about uh big league femininity what what about the uniforms uh, i mean playing baseball in skirts it's it's got to be a little tough, but they got yeah adapt. it's
1: not it's not exactly practical uh Well, they, you know, there were a few sports that were considered sort of acceptable, um, at that time for women that were considered feminine and, um, you know, like ice skating or figure skating would be one of them. And then I think field hockey was another, um, very low contact and usually elegant or pretty, um, like ice skating, figure skating. So they designed these uniforms sort of based on the existing uniforms of these sports, um, and yeah, a, a lot of the women, having come from uh, you know growing up on farms and things like that, um, we're not really uh, what's the word? I guess refined as far as <laughs> as far as you know what society the women that you would see in magazines and, and sure, things like yeah, that. yeah. So um, a lot of them were you know a lot of them kind of laughed and scoffed at this whole charm. School. They had to do charm school right. and um, they got these beauty guides and you know. To some of them, it was pretty ridiculous, and then to others, it was like, "Well, I didn't know how to, you know, this was all stuff that I never learned growing up." That was kind of, it was kind of helpful or useful um, because they were sort of they were going to be traveling around and interacting with the public a lot, and you know, so they had to conduct themselves as ladies. And um, and this beauty guide is so fun. That was actually the first thing I I drew or um, created illustrations based on for that self-published book of drawings hmm. I was telling you about. I just, the juxtaposition reading this, these beauty guides and like, (laughs) like the, the segment about the eyes and how they're the window to the soul. And they, they bespeak your inner thoughts and they, you know, you must keep your eyes healthy and glowing and beautiful. And, um, you know, it's like the last thing on anyone's mind when they're, when they're playing a professional sport, but, (laughs) um, it somehow was important to, you know, to this league. And I just loved the images I had in my head of the juxtapositions of that, like your eyes, but then, you know, reading a story about a player, uh, getting a grounder pop up and give her a shiner and uh you know, all the things that were completely opposite mm. of the, this beauty guide. It was just so much fun mm. and I just had a lot of fun drawing from that. So that's kind of where it started. Yeah. Um was And there's a growth which you couldn't they the couldn't silliness.
0: wear shorts and um they had to Have lipstick on at all time and at all times. So it seems like. Yeah,
1: on the field, even, you know, they couldn't go out to, yeah, they'd be in the dugout having to put on lipstick because you were fined. You were, it was a rule of the league and you would be fined, uh, actual money for playing a game (laughs) without lipstick on. Uh, yeah, and couldn't, even in public, even, uh, traveling when they weren't playing, they were not allowed to be seen in public in pants. They had to, wear skirts or dresses. Um, and so a lot of them, you know, they'd be traveling on the bus all night and they'd have pants on and they'd have to get off the bus to go to the bathroom or something. So they'd have to throw on a skirt over their pants. And uh, it was just, you know, yeah, well, kind of silly. But, uh, but they
0: persisted uh, and they, you know, uh, played their games. You have a great illustration in the book uh, about um, uh, apparently Babe Ruth uh, had something to say about this where they say, uh, you know, baseball would be, the, the the women are too delicate. They would kill them to play every day. And then there's of course there's an there's an AAGBL player right next to him in your, your illustration uh, about that, saying how. Uh, in fact, it's what one of the one of the women, Catherine um, Horseman, saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wait a minute. You know, I pitch one night, third base one night, and these guys in the majors, pit, you know, pitch every four days. So. <laughs>
1: yeah. so take that, babe.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That was a really funny – you know, a lot of the women that I interviewed, that was like one of the common things that they all said that just cracked me up is uh so many of them had something to say about that, you know, where it's like these guys in the majors nowadays, you know, they throw in – they put a pitcher in for two innings and, you know, they get five days rest and they kind of all but called them a bunch of sissies <laughs> because <laughs> they would play, you know, every game and then a lot of them played multiple positions and sure. well – Um The, uh, there's a story in there about Jean Fout, the only woman to have pitched uh woman or man, only Mm -hmm. professional baseball player to pitch two perfect games in a career. But in the playoffs, she pitched, uh, and they were shorthanded. They had a 12 woman roster going into the playoffs. So she pitched and then she played, I want to say third base, um, the night, you know, when she Mm -hmm. wasn't pitching and, uh, she had a story about, Running, trying to beat out a, a throw, and she made it. And she she slid and then sat down on the base because she was so exhausted. So <laughs> I, I I just had to sit and wait for the next play because she just physically could not get up and and stand while she waited for the play. Um, yeah, they just played, you know, and those skirts they they'd be sliding yeah. and they would get what they called strawberries, just sure, yeah. big, um, you know, scrapes on their thighs. And they would get them patched up and they, the chaperone would put merthiolate or some sort of medicine on it. And they would they would patch it up. And even that was awful because the, the bandages would stick or whatever. But yeah. so then they'd have to slide on the other side for about a week. And then when that got just maybe kind of, you know, then they'd have to slide on the other side. Or they were just constantly ripping up. They just basically had open wounds yeah. on their thighs for three months out of the year, which is just crazy.
0: Well, uh, tough women. Um <laughs> so um uh look, so this has really been great um I do want to ask you a little bit, obviously that the time that we're talking about this is the era of jim Crow baseball um you know African Americans weren't in the big leagues or in the white minor leagues and um i i the uh, the all american um girls professional baseball league was a they were victimized by this same so called gentleman's agreement am I right
1: correct yeah um they i I found Board meeting notes, which was very interesting. So they, I guess, kind of like Major League Baseball, there was no official written rule mm-hmm. barring, um, women of color from the league, but it was essentially kind of an, yeah, an unspoken thing. It was, um, discouraged. It was not, it was certainly not encouraged. And it was kind of, essentially they were not allowed. Uh, apparently, um, several women showed up over the course of the, the time that the league existed to try out and um, were either turned away or told they weren't good enough, which is ridiculous because as we, as yes. we know, several of them went on um, to, well, several went on to play in, in softball leagues or other leagues, mm-hmm. but three of them went on to play in the all male uh, Negro leagues yes. in the, for the Indianapolis clowns. So clearly they were good enough. So yeah. and
0: um, it, uh, I know one player, certainly uh, what Mamie uh, peanut Johnson, a pitcher yeah wasn't she yeah. sort of um uh eventually uh you know uh later on again, given an honorary membership in the uh in the league
1: she was yeah they they uh voted to make her a an honorary member which you know uh is great and all i guess but it never changed the fact that she didn't get to play <laughs> yeah,
0: no unfortunate and then and in the book in your book you 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 talk about a player like tony stone who as you mentioned there played for the indianapolis clowns in the negro league uh played with men
1: yeah she actually took uh the the spot that was vacated by hank aaron when he uh Not he left bad. to go <laughs> yeah yeah <Not> <laughs> big shoes to fill though but Not she did bad. she didn't go
0: um Great. Well, um, so, uh, well, uh, uh, the league lasted until the mid 1950s. What 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 do you think? uh, Why did it end up ending? Why did it uh, run out of steam finally, since, you know, it certainly was successful in its heyday?
1: Yeah, I think it was a kind of a perfect storm of a variety of things. Um, A few years in Wrigley had sold the league to his to a business partner. And that business partner really had ambitions to make it grow and do well, but he was so overwhelmed with his own other business that, uh, he made the decision to sell the, the teams to their local, to local businessmen in the towns where the teams existed. Hmm. And a lot of those men just kind of took it on as a fun project. They didn't have a collective, uh, drive to see it succeed, Um, And one of the things that kind of happened as a result, which is unfortunate, is that this was an incredibly unique sport and these women are playing baseball. But there's no we have the same problem today. Actually, there's no um, sort of training. There's no funnel for girls Mm -hmm. playing baseball who could grow up and and try out it was something they had to go around and you know they didn't have the resources to be training or to start you know a lot of towns started youth leagues and included girls which was Mm -hmm. amazing but by the time they got old enough to play uh, the league had ended but also you know the war was over and uh, television came along so a Mm -hmm. lot of people were watching baseball games on television there were no longer gas rations that were imposed by the war so uh, almost every family also got an automobile and they were taking road trips and they were Able to drive to baseball games or traveling, there was a new freeway system. Um, it just sort of
2: mm-hmm.
1: all these things kind of conspired, and had it maintained a good ownership with uh, the same marketing know-how that Wrigley had, mm-hmm. it really it would have stood a chance. But um, it just kind of fizzled with the new ownership and their lack of, you know, they didn't, they weren't willing to spend as much money on it and all of that. Oh, so. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: you, you, you end the book, um, uh, with, uh, a look at, uh, the contemporary world and the, 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 the um, uh, how, how young girls today, their opportunities to play, play baseball with, uh, no knock on softball, of course. Uh, it's a great game, but, uh, there, there are some changes. It's still, I guess, pretty obscure, but you talk a little bit about the women's, uh, world baseball cup and some other things. Uh, so ha- is this, um, you know, the, the legacy that the, uh, the all American, uh, girls professional baseball league has left for us, um, uh, a world, at least international competition for women in baseball.
1: Yeah. You know, I think the, the most important thing of, uh, people learning about its existence is just learning about its existence, learning that it mm. happened and that it's possible because, um, there's just sort of an arrested development with baseball. There were uh several lawsuits that happened after Title nine and basically hmm. girls were just sort of ushered into softball as a way hmm. to keep them from playing sure. baseball with the boys and um the lawsuits it's a around, weird...
0: the, around little league around the years when uh young girls started wanting to play Little League baseball and uh they came up with uh the lawsuits sort of forced. Or allowed to I get what Little League to divert the uh girls into softball?
1: Yeah, it sort of allowed the little league organization to um you know to say they were doing their job and yeah. accepting you know, they they could keep from getting sued. <laughs> but uh there were a lot of arguments that girls were too delicate and you know, there were there were all kinds of yeah. arguments against it and they they basically just created softball. And that was just a direct, Oh, you're a girl, you go over here and you play softball. And, um, because of that, then it just never grew into, um, that that's the way it went through high school and then into college. And, um, so yeah, there's, there has ever since, there's just been fewer and fewer opportunities for girls to play actual, to play baseball. Um, and yeah, just softball and baseball are two separate sports. One is not better than the other, but for women who want to play baseball, it's 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 a real concession to play softball because it's just different. Um, and uh and but the, now hmm. we're seeing more. I mean, yeah, now absolutely. now there are lots of great organizations and I think it's growing and I think there's I think there's a lot more possibility now.
0: And you mentioned some uh some really uh uh terrific athletes toward the end of the book um uh, with Malika Underwood, uh, Ila Borders, you know, what the first woman to pitch in, uh, what men's pro league at the, at the college level. Um, mm-hmm. Justine Siegel, who's like a, who's athlete and baseball academic, if I can <laughs> describe her that way.
1: Yeah. She's a very knowledgeable coach and, uh, she is the founder of Baseball for All. The, uh, um, oh, yes. Good point. Yeah. The organization that is, uh, working to, Help develop girls' teams and leagues, and hopefully, hopefully, kind of a new little league of sorts, empowering girls in baseball.
0: Well, uh, well, Anika, um, Anika, this has been really great to talk to you. Uh, I'm a big fan of the book. Uh, once again, that it's it's full of just great uh, cartoons, drawings, illustrations, um, juxtaposed with some terrific um, quotes from uh the original members and uh, of the All-American uh Girls Professional Baseball League. So the book is coming out this month from Chron- um from uh Chronicle Books. I I guess you're going to be promoting it and doing some things around promoting it? Yes?
1: Yeah, hmm. yeah. Doing some traveling, some events, some um I I get to throw out the first pitch at the Yankees game in May, which is exciting.
0: Whoa. Okay, well not yeah. i because I'm a big Yankees gotta... fan. So <laughs> Are you? Yes, I am. Okay, so I gotta,
1: I gotta start practicing. I can't be one of those.
0: I, <laughs> I will be be in the that. I'm gonna dirt. make sure I'm watching. I <laughs> want well, to try to make sure if I can get up there, I'll, I'll see it because I want to see it. Yeah, you know, work on your, yeah. work on your throwing. You don't want to look bad. Oh yeah. Out there. Okay. Oh yeah.
1: I'm giving up some drawing time to practice throwing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thank you so much for being on More to Come and congratulations on the book.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thank you very much.
0: And welcome, more to come, listeners, to another episode of Stargazing. My name is Calvin Reed. I'm Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Editor of uh, PW Comics World and Editor of the Fanatic PW's Twice a Month uh, Comics and Pop Culture Newsletter. And I'm here with the PW Graphic Novels Review Editor, Meg Limke. Hey, Meg, how you doing?
2: Hey, Calvin.
0: So what do we do here on Stargazing, Meg?
2: We talk about books that have received a star review in Publisher's Weekly,
0: which indicates
2: (laughs) the book is notable and excellent. Great. Um, And what are are we – oh, sorry, go on. Hmm. No, we have two books, two books to discuss today. And the first is a debut. Mm -hmm. Um, It's short stories by Bishak Sohm titled Apsara Engine, and this is coming from Feminist Press, which I'm really excited to see them doing our graphic novels. Do
0: they do graphic novels?
2: I, I I in fact, came prepared. I just spoke to the publicist. They've had two prior graphic novels. uh One is by Christy Rode. Do you know Christy Rode's work? I I love her work. Uh Um, I don't think I am. Mm -hmm. But this is their first color graphic novel, Mm -hmm. vocal. Um, and color is used in a really interesting way in the work but not to jump ahead these are short comics they're speculative fiction Um, they're idiosyncratic they all um, they center on a South Asian perspective but really take on various topics and they're just fragmentary, dreamlike I was saying to Calvin they're like uh, very queer, black mirror type stories Um, Bishak is a trans women and there's a lot in them about the trans perspective and stories that that have an interesting like turn of the screw ending and look at um, mm. some of the implications of being trans in society and are kind of like trans futurism.
0: Yeah. They're, they're incredibly intriguing stories. Um, uh, and uh, while they are, uh, I guess, speculative fiction and, uh, but they're also, uh, they're, they're kind of dreamlike, mm-hmm. um, uh, unpredictably odd. Um, um, and for myself, though, what, what, what I was driven by, and I haven't read all the stories, but I, but, um, the ones that I've read, um, uh, let's see, the, uh, come back to me throat, uh, Mina and mm-hmm. Aparno, the is which is really, really kind of trippy. Um, and, and then what Epsar Engine, which is almost like a diagram as mm-hmm. a story. Uh, but they are, they're, they're driven by this, uh, kind of powerful narrative, but, um, they don't really go where you expect them to go. They're, um, idiosyncratic, if you want to call it that, um, you know, uh, they, they oddly seem to, uh, they're, they're kind of deceptive in their intent. They, they seem, they seem to be driving you toward one thing, but, but at the same time, um, uh, there's a, a an undercurrent. There's a parallel narrative that actually seems to be reveal more about the characters than the main narrative drive.
2: They're unnerving. I mean, I I feel like what she does very well is this quiet, slow, slow, cold burn. You know, it's like this way that you enter in a story and something feels comfortable and then becomes uncomfortable. Um, I loved the art also. It has, yeah. it's very elegant. Um, in the review, the reviewer writes some delicate lines return to sharply expressive faces and gestures with mm. subtle sepia tinting the stories in luminescent layered colors on chapter openers reminiscent of retrofuturistic stained glass. Um, the font is also this a, a cursive. It's a very precise cursive. Mm, yeah. And the review says it's as if pulled from an illuminated manuscript. I, I just loved the precision of the layouts, Um and just very artful. It has this real like hand drawn, classically, you know, indie comics, like care of each page. You could really see it, it's something that was like carefully bound and given at a, a show, you know, hand to hand. But it's being put together by this awesome, you know, long-established feminist press but who has a super current um, list and I love to see them doing comics. Yeah,
0: uh, the author is Bishak Sohm. I've uh, been we, making sure I say her name properly. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the drawings are, are in often very much like the stories themselves. I mean, they capture, they carry the stories well. This e- elliptical nature of them where where they they don't seem to hit where you expect them to, or they take a circuitous route to get there.
2: And um, as we say in the review, her debut heralds the rise of a new talent to watch. And in fact, um, Bicek has a new book coming out from Street Noise. Oh, right.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, right. I think that's uh, a memoir too, isn't it? Or
2: I believe so. Yeah. It's coming out. It's scheduled for the fall. We, this is that, by the way, is a brand new publisher, so we'll, we'll see if we get to talk about them more as we start to see their books coming through the reviews department, but I've heard a lot about them and, um, I'm excited for Soem to have two books like this, one after another, to kind of help make a strong presentation to the comics community.
0: All right. More to come from Bishak Soem. All right. Next.
2: Next. So this is a big book. This was on the top of our anticipated spring announcements yeah. list. And absolutely uh, to date, one of my, the books that have meant most to me so far in 2020, Kent State, Four Dead in Ohio by Durf Back Durf. And this is coming from Abrams Comic Arts. And um, I know took quite a lot of time and investment by Durf in research. Um, so I can see. You can just – that's true, and you can see that on every page. It's just really – this is a work that um, had a lot of intense preparation. Um, Bachter did My Friend Dahmer, which also was a movie recently, so he's coming in with strong credentials. This is a account of the days leading up to the infamous tragedy of May 1970, when mm. the National Guardsmen killed four unarmed students and injured nine others You know, in a complete kind of like untethered barrage of fire into yeah. the – Unarmed college
0: students on the campus of Kent State University.
2: And including just like bystanders, people walking by, you know, they weren't, it wasn't just protesters, it was people who just were going to class to, not that either way that that justifies this response. It's just an interesting aspect of it that he gets into quite a bit in the work. Um,
0: Well, this is a, this is just an incredible Book. I mean, this is a new level of achievement for Durf. Excuse mm-hmm. me if I, if I interrupted, uh, but, no, no, um, go for it. Um, uh, you know, my friend Dahmer kind of made his reputation, mm-hmm. uh, in one area. Um, this book too is really, uh, I mean, uh, Durf, for those who may not know him, I mean, he is, he trained to be a journalist.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: he, you know, he, he, his career as a, uh, basically is an alt You know, an alt-press comics artist, counterculture comics artist, Um, uh, took a different turn or took him away, I guess, from his presumed profession. But the work that he has done in this book really shows, um, you know, really a a committed and passionate journalist at the top of his powers. Uh, There's an enormous research that went into this book, Mm -hmm. even though it uh, uses novelistic techniques because he recreates the lives of the four um, college students that were killed in the days of, uh, approaching the shooting, but this is a meticulously researched work that drops you back in Ohio, and 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 we should mention that Durf is a son of Ohio himself. Mm-hmm. He grew up in Kent State. He grew up in a, in a excuse me a suburb of Kent State, not far. Excuse me, a suburb of of uh, I'm sorry, Akron. Mm-hmm. Uh, that not far from Kent State. Uh, he grew up in the music, you know, as a young punk rocker. He grew up in the music scene. Apparently, it was a big one around there. And he really recreates the time, the anti-communist hysteria uh, of the anti-war period by leadership from the federal government on down, um, and uh, the, the and every awful step that that led to the National Guard. Not trained in dealing with civil unrest or unarmed students. This was a, a National Guard unit trained for war, uh, and the tragic results of it all. So sorry of me to go on like that, but this is no. Really that's a, extremely helpful. A terrific. Uh, book.
2: And you know, as the reviewer notes, you know, those wholly sympathetic to the student protesters, Baxter also takes care to report the grueling conditions National Guardsmen were yes. forced to endure. So he 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 gets into the experience of the individual National Guardsmen as well, Um, and some, you know, spies essentially who were placed within the bodies. You know, just the surveillance culture um, aspect of it is really fascinating.
0: There were spies uh, um, uh, in the student movement, police spies, Mm -hmm. FBI spies all over the campus. Uh, They were agent provocateurs to some degree uh, as well. And one of the other things Durf does that isn't often done in accounts uh, that I've seen anyway of the Kent State um, massacre, he, 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 he throws a light on black students and the, the mm-hmm. Black United Students, the black student organization at Kent State at the time. He talks about how many of the black students at Kent State, uh, they had experienced the National Guard uh, before because the governor of the state, were reflexively sent the National Guard to put down uh, the urban rebellions of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. The they knew what the Guard was capable of, and when they knew that the Guard was going to be on campus, the black student leaders uh, put the word out to all black students to n- not to engage with them, to get off of campus, to stay in your rooms. The white students, on the other hand, um, were often from different parts of the state, uh, different parts of the city, They did not take the guards seriously, and they were uh, protesting vehemently um, Nixon's invasion of Cambodia. And it was a toxic mix of uh, untrained National Guardsmen and idealistic students.
2: He really individuates the lives of the students in a way that I appreciated and is completely heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, it is.
2: You know, um, some of them... You know, they're just bright, young people yeah. with dreams yeah. and so young. Um, he does it both through imagined dialogue, some of it um, pulled from their writings, you know, research he did into um, family histories, but also just through really lovely artistic choices. Um, he, you know, everything from the way characters smile, their haircuts, background, you know, the music yeah. they listen to, you know, he gets, he gets sort of what that, Um, 70s period was for students at the time in a really humane way Um, there's some pretty striking critique of the politicians Um, nobody exactly is a big fan of Nixon now but at the time his power and his paranoia were from the very top down driving these kinds of encounters and he makes some really notable um, cameos in the book
0: yeah, no, it's really a masterwork for for Durf and um, um, you have to wonder if this won't end up on a movie screen at some point as well.
2: And of course, it's very relevant work for our times. You know, we're, we're currently yeah. in um, a situation where encounters with protesters and police have turned violent, um, where surveillance culture through digital media now, in a new way, is affecting. People who are looking to have any kind of political speech. And it's, it's just a chilling, it's a chilling work to look at. I think there still is this kind of sense that society has learned from Kent State, but looking at it in the context of today, um, we need this reminder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just a superlative work. So. So thanks, Meg um thanks, Calvin. two outstanding t- titles very different both of them mm-hmm. um, uh, in their own ways um so uh thanks so much
2: i'll talk to you again soon
0: you bet